Um, I got involved in this topic because I um, did a little stint as the uh, consultant to the um, Society for Participatory Medicine. And I come to this place with a very unusual background because I, I'm an occupational therapist, I'm an attorney, and I've been working in pain as an occupational therapist for many, many years. But I got involved because of my own personal pain issues. So I became a certified pain educator. I had to know more than my clinicians because I have some very unusual, rare conditions. Um, I'm a kidney stone former. I have something called medullary sponge kidney, which I have yet to meet uh, someone treating me who knows what it is. I'm usually educating them about it. Um, and so I've had issues with trying, you know, getting pain medication, getting pain treatment. So I had to really become a radical patient. Um, and to be able to say, well, you know, I am a college professor, I do research, I've read the literature, and this is what it says. Um, and my currently, I have, um, I recently came down with Graves' disease, and my endocrinologist's answer is stop reading and don't go on the internet. <laughs> um, to which I say to him, but if I had listened to you, then my thyroid eye disease would have gotten worse. So I'm glad I didn't listen to you. So um, we have this very bad relationship, but um, I keep going. Uh, so I try and seek out providers who will work with me. So with that background, these are my disclosures. I have funding from a bunch of places, but nothing that should conflict with anything I'm doing here today. Learning objectives to outline the benefits of patient engagement in pain practice. Explain how patients use technology to learn about their health and make healthcare decisions. Compare and contrast good patients and bad patients and e-patients. And describe how to incorporate patient engagement tools in pain practice to increase patient engagement. Um, what is participatory medicine? This is a movement in which networked patients shift from being mere passengers to responsible drivers of their health, and in which providers encourage and value them as full partners. Now, um, I have been listening to several other lectures this week, and I've heard of a few providers you know, say, if a patient comes to you with a three-ring binder with information from the internet, tell them to stop going to the internet. And um, my response to that is, look at what they have, see if it's any good, and if it isn't, guide them in the right direction where they can find out good information, because your 10-minute exam doesn't give them the information they want, and that's why they're looking. Or if you attended my other lectures on social media, you can also refer them to one of your YouTube videos that explains what you're doing, what their condition is, and what they can do to help themselves in between. That's patient engagement. So when you believe in participatory medicine, patients become the driver. They're responsible to become an e-patient, and e-patients are patients who are equipped, enabled, empowered, and engaged in their health and healthcare decisions. The patient-provider relationship becomes an equal partnership between the e-patient and the health providers and the systems that support them. Um, what is patient engagement? The Center for Advancing Health defines patient engagement as actions individuals must take to obtain the greatest benefit from healthcare services available to them. If I didn't have the definition of medullary sponge kidney memorized from Harrison's, I would not get the care that I need because I'm the one that has to explain to every provider I see what that is and three other chronic conditions that I have that nobody's ever heard of. So um, I also became a case manager so that I could say to them, I'm a certified case manager. You have to listen to me. I know what I'm talking about because somebody's got to manage all these conditions. So you will find people who are very knowledgeable, and I'm going to show you some examples of people who save their own lives by being 
engage patients. Now, um, Leonard Kish has called patient engagement the blockbuster drug of the 21st century. And research shows that patient engagement benefits everyone in the healthcare relationship. It improves outcomes, it lowers costs, it improves patient care, and it decreases medical errors. You know, the one time, I can't take codeine, and I, when I was pregnant, I was passing kidney stones. They told me, you nobody passes kidney stones when they're pregnant. Well, I did during all of my pregnancies. So when the doctor wrote a prescription to me for codeine, and I looked at it, and I said, look at the outside of my chart where it says in big letters, allergic to codeine. That decreased medical errors because I was an engaged patient. Somebody else might be dead by now. Um, the evidence also shows that engaged patients with chronic conditions are more likely to adhere to treatment regimens. However, um, Jesse Grumman, who was an engaged patient who, who survived three bouts of cancer but not the fourth one, she said that engagement does not imply compliance. But when you work together, people will follow a treatment regimen, are more likely if you work together on that treatment regimen. And this is all evidence-based. Now, I want to talk a little bit about good versus bad patients. Um, there's a lot of research on, on this, I say tongue-in-cheek. It is suggested that patients come to be defined as good or bad, not because of anything inherent in them or in their behavior, but as a consequence of the interaction between staff and patients. So what, what's a good patient? They worry about insulting the doctor or provider. They worry about sounding stupid in front of the doctor or nurse practitioner or PA. They think repeatedly about leaving and finding a new doctor, but they don't. Good patients are too scared to tell the doctor they'd like a second opinion. They stick with that provider who's been treating them for a long time, even though they aren't getting better. They stop asking questions when they don't get satisfying answers. Now, bad patients. Being a bad patient is crucial to mastering the skills of an empowered patient, according to this article, Lessons from Mom, Don't Be a Good Patient. Bad patients ask a lot of questions. They ask if they don't understand, and they keep asking until they get an answer that they do. They don't care how annoyed the provider is getting. They don't worry whether their doctor or provider likes them. They don't care if they upset their provider, if they are putting their health in jeopardy, and, they, and being liked is not important to them. I know my doctor, my endocrinologist hates me. Um, remember that this is a business transaction that they're paying the doctor, or the insurance is paying the doctor on their behalf. Uh, for a service, and they're entitled to good service, just like you want good service in a restaurant. Um, they, they should be respectful, as they would to anyone providing a service, and there's no duty to be a perfect patient. What do we know about how patients use technology? Because this is crucial to this whole um, scenario of patient engagement. 81% of U.S. adults use the Internet, and uh, this is from Pew Research from Pew Center, 59% say they have looked online for health information in the past year. 35% of adults have gone online specifically to try to figure out what medical condition they or someone they know has. Um, so a third have gone online for medical condition information. And 35% say that at one time or another, they've gone online specifically to try and figure out what medical condition they or someone else might have. When asked if the information found online let them to think that they were in need of medical attention, 46% of the online diagnosers say that that was the case. 36% um, of the online diagnosers say it was something they could take care of at home, and 11% said it was um, both or in between. So um, we know that people are going online, and in, in fact, there's even a website called CrowdMed where you can upload your story 
and ask other medical detectives to come on and help solve your problem. And an example of one was a woman who had um, uh, the tick disease. Uh, my, thank you. And the problem was she didn't have the classic rash. So she went on um, this crowd med and everybody kind of said, this is what we, you know, you got Lyme, go get a blood test. She did and she had Lyme disease. And she had been to several doctors who told her there's nothing wrong with you, never bothered to do the blood test. But she became engaged and went and said, I want you to do this blood test. They did the blood test and then she found out that she had Lyme. So it was a joint decision. Now, 41% of these online diagnosers say that a medical professional confirmed the diagnosis that they found. Okay, that's not bad. Um, an additional 2% say the medical professional partially confirmed it. 35% um, say they did not visit a clinician to get a professional opinion, they just went with the internet. 18% um, say they did consult a clinician, and the clinician either didn't agree or offered a different opinion, and 1% um, say their, their conversation with the clinician was inconclusive. And when asked to think about the last time they had a serious health issue and to whom they turned for help, either online or offline, 70% adult, of adults got information and care or support from a health professional. 60% got information and support from family and friends, and 24% got information um, from others to have, um, who had the same condition. So working with people that have the same condition is also very important. And there are a lot of support groups on Facebook that are closed Facebook groups that you can refer your, your um, patients to to get that kind of support from other people who have the condition. So after you have your visit of you know, 15 minutes max that we have time to spend, you can refer them to, and I, one of my um, disclosures was I do uh, run a support group for the National Fibromyalgia and Chronic Pain Association. And uh, we have 2,200 members. People come on, they can't sleep in the middle of the night. Instead of calling a doctor, they come on and say, I can't sleep, is anybody up? People come on and support them. So you might want to refer people to some of these um, support groups for in between. Um, the vast majority of this care and conversation took place offline, but a small group of people did communicate with each of these sources online. Um, and one last study, 31% of all cell phone users and 52% of smartphone users have used their phone to look up health information. Um, and this is particularly interesting because it's, um, if you are young, young people, Latinos and African Americans are more likely, significantly more likely to have mobile internet access with smartphones. 19% um, of smartphone owners had downloaded apps specifically designed for healthcare. This is a 2012 study, so it's probably a lot more since then. Um, I don't know, but I try to find out is the default setting for people with health questions. 35% uh, of adults say that at one time or another they've gone online specifically to figure out um, what they or someone else might have. I'm going to go move on. Um, one in four internet users living with high blood pressure, diabetes, heart condition, lung conditions, or chronic conditions have gone online, whereas 15% um, of internet users who report no chronic conditions have sought help online. And this is just more and more patients are going to the internet for medical advice to keep my practice going. I'm changing my name to Dr. Google. Now this is an amazing, absolutely amazing story. If you, um, if you get a chance to look up, uh, if you Google ePatient Dave and his TED Talk, you must see this because this is the um, patient engagement poster child, poster adult, amazing story. Dave DeBroncart was told he had stage four kidney cancer and that he was gonna die. So he went online, he found a cancer community online he went online and said, I've been told I'm gonna die. I have stage four kidney cancer. Um, 
is there anything I can do for it? And a bunch of kidney cancer survivors came on and said, yes, this is the protocol. You will live if you follow this protocol. Your mission is to find a clinician who will work with you with this protocol. So he did, and he was cured, and he's around to talk about it. And his TED Talk is absolutely amazing. He shows you his x-rays. This is not made up. We got, it's evidence. We got the proof. Um, and he's now on the board of the um, American Society of uh, Cipher Participatory Medicine as a big proponent. He's written a book called Let the Patient Help. Um, there are a bunch of books that have been written by members of the society, and the society members are clinicians as well as patients. Um, Leanna Wen, who is now, um, uh, she's in, in Baltimore, and I think she's like the, whatever the doctor of the city of Baltimore is, she's that. She came from Boston. She wrote a book called um, When Doctors Don't, Won't Listen, which is another incredibly good book to, um, to read. Everybody should read that. So patients today have resources. You have Dr. Google. You have Dr. Twitter. Um, you can put things online and get answers. You've got CrowdMed. There's all kinds of things. So what do patients want out of the doctor-clinician-patient relationship? They want respect. They want information. They want privacy. They want a role in the decision-making. They want a seat at the table, the board, or committee of the hospital system. And I mentioned Dave's book, Let the Patient Help. They want to help with their diagnosis. They want to help with what's going on. Now, um, this is from a study um, of the patient involvement continuum. Um, it goes from the, the left to the right in increasing um, patient involvement. So on the left, you have the paternalistic model, which was the traditional model, where clinicians make decisions with no input from the patient. Um, in the middle, you have the model of collaboration. And this is the model of shared decision-making. And I'm going to show you some, some shared decision-making tools that you can use where providers and patients collaborate in making decisions. And then to the right is the other extreme, which is the informed model, where patients make their own treatment decisions um, without caring what the provider is. Obviously, you want to work towards the middle and towards collaboration. So what, what provider competencies do you have to have for shared decision making? You have to develop a partnership with your patient. So you can't have that attitude of, um, oh, you're on the internet. You know, I don't want you on the internet. I don't want you reading. You have to develop a partnership. And you have to acknowledge the patient's preference for information about his or her health or treatment preferences. Um, and that there's a role in decision making. And it's, there's uncertainty about the course of action to take. You, know, you can't say, OK, I you know, every can't have cookie cutters and expect patient engagement. Because if, if every patient who has low back gets this, this, and this, that's not necessarily going to work. Um, and you have to learn to respond to patients' ideas, expectations, and concerns with some respect. Um, providers also have to be able to identify choices and evaluate research evidence for each patient. They need to present evidence to patients. Um, they need to help them make decisions based on the evidence, the impact of the alternatives, patients' values, quality of life, and they need to agree on a course of action. You may be saying right now, oh, yeah, if I had three hours, maybe I could do that. So um, what I'm suggesting, I'm going to show you some tools that you can use, some shared decision-making tools. And I also think that it's helpful to have in your practice, um, you don't have to be a movie star, but you can record YouTube videos. You can have a YouTube channel in your practice. So if someone comes in with a back injury, a back problem, or you know, whatever body part problem it is, you can have some videos on YouTube, and you tell them, you know, there are treatment choices. I'd like you to go home, and I'd like you to watch my video on back injuries. And, you know, if you have teenagers, 
they can help you record this stuff. You don't have to get fancy. You could do it on your phone. You just need to find a teenager. Um, and, you know, they, they work cheap. Um, so if you record these videos, then you can give your patients alternatives. They can watch them. They can see what the choices are. Then they can come back, and you can work with them on what do you want to do. And then they see that you, you, know, you care. It's, there's, it's, there's more touch. It's more of a, an interactive feeling. So it doesn't have to be all during your visit. So becoming a participatory provider means that you're engaging in shared decision making um, in clinical practice. And this assumes that both the patient and the provider need access to evidence. So you can tell them what the evidence is to make a decision or the reasons behind making a decision. You know, I had a, an, um, a situation with, um, I went to Japan. And um, I was lecturing there, and it was a very long flight. So I got bursitis in my right hip, because I have long legs, and no place to put my leg. It was horrible. So when I came back, I went to my family practice doctor, who um, said, well, let's take a flat plate x-ray and make sure nothing's growing in there. I said, OK, I'll let you take a flat plate x-ray. Nothing's growing. I have bursitis. But I'm going to send you to a pain doctor. And I thought to myself, what the heck does that mean in, in Arlington, Virginia? So I went to this um, pain doctor who was part of like a national pain practice, and um, I told her what the problem was. Let me examine you. I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm a certified pain educator, and I'm pretty sure that it's just, you know, just give me a shot. It'll go away. You know, it's bursitis. No, no, no. I want an MRI and this and that. I said, you know what? I'm over 50. You do an MRI, you're going to come up with five more diagnoses. That's what Leanna Wen taught me, that side effects, you know, MRIs have side effects. I don't want you touching my back. <laughs> Give me a shot. If it doesn't work, we'll do it your way. Um, and she said, well, I just want you know, a couple of films. You know, I get there, I find that she's taken eight x-rays. And I didn't need those x-rays, and I didn't want them. So you know, what happens? Oh, well, you have some Yeah, I have degenerative changes. I told you that before you took the x-ray. Don't you think before you do imaging? Um, just give me the shot. So she gave me the shot, and it went away. Um, so you know, I did not let her. I got away with not doing the MRI. Shared decision making, except it was my insistence. Um, but there's shared decision making tools on should I have an MRI. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Now, modifying the process and power dynamics in the setting through shared decision making fosters collaboration, and research shows it works. So, what are patient decision aids? These are tools that help people become involved. They show people evidence, they let people make decisions based on what the evidence is. They complement rather than replace counseling from a healthcare practitioner. They help you explain to the patient what you're talking about. And you discuss the options with the patient. Um, so just some things from Twitter that I thought was interesting. Um, finally, your med student told me today it was the first time they had taught him about patient experiences of care. Um, I'll, I'll be helping run a, a short course for uh, med students to follow patients on social media to learn about their experiences. Um, OK, so patient decision aids make life easier for both patient and provider. Here's an example from the Ottawa Family Decision Guide. And if you look at this, it, it looks at what do you know? What are your values? What's the certainty? What's the decision that you have to make? What's the reason for the choice? And what are the options? This one's very open-ended. But there are some very specific ones, and I want to get to those. Those are the option grids. These are free. You can go to optiongrid.org. They're easy to read, and they give you the three choices of interventions. They're evidence-based, and they're wonderful. They've been published. So some pain-related ones they have, and I'm going to show you in a second, carpal tunnel, osteoarthritis of the hip, the knee, sciatica, spinal stenosis, and they're constantly coming out with more of them. Best part is they're free. So here's an example of one. And I don't know if you can see this in the back, but basically 
It explains what sciatica is. It says sciatica from a slipped herniated disc. Use this guide to help you and your healthcare professional talk about how best to treat sciatica. It's for people diagnosed with a herniated disc who have experienced sciatica pain for at least six weeks and is not for people with bowel and urine problems because of the disc pressing on the nerve. So you've got four columns. First, frequently asked questions, and then they give you the three options. What happens if you manage without injections or surgery? The do-nothing approach, well, not do-nothing approach, because it may be PT. Um, what if you get injections, and what if you have surgery? So it tells you what the treatment is, in, what's involved in each one, how soon will I feel better, which one gives me the best results, and that's my favorite, because it says, um, without injections, 45% of people who manage without surgery say they're very or somewhat satisfied with their symptoms after a year. Um, injections, it says it's hard to say. Some studies have shown benefits from steroid injections, others haven't. And with surgery, one year after surgery, 70% say they were very or somewhat satisfied with their symptoms. So this does all the work for you. It gives you the options and it gives the patient a range of choices of treatment. Um, and here's just the second part of it. How will this treatment impact um, my ability to work? Will I need any other treatment? And you can download these again free. Um, HealthWise has some, those you have to pay for, but I like these because they have different questions, like should I have an MRI, should I have surgery for heel pain? Um, this is at healthwise.org. These are also all evidence-based. And this is from the one on the MRI. Should I have an MRI? Um, they give you the key points. It's expensive. Most low back pain gets better on its own. The MRI is helpful for my doctor to find the source of pain. Why would my doctor want an MRI? and then frequently ask questions. What is an MRI? Why does my provider want one, et cetera? So this helps you make decisions together with your patient um, and makes them feel that they're a part of decision-making. Pick, you pick something together. They're likely to carry it out. That's what all the evidence shows. They're likely to have a better outcome. Now, um, the Ottawa Patient Decision Aid Development Training, you can take this course. It's an online self-guided tutorial that gets you through the development process if you want to create your own shared decision-making tools. Um, you can have someone in your office do them, and that may be helpful. You may be able to see the patient and then have someone else in your office go through the decision-making guides, the shared decision-making with them. Or it may, again, be the topic of a YouTube video where you say, you know, I'm really thinking, I have, you know, you have three treatment options for this, and I'd like you to watch this video and learn about each one, and then we can get together and see which one you would prefer. And that's, that's my last slide, and I thought I would take some questions if you have them. Okay, the question was, how do you know what's good on the internet, and how do you know it's pure garbage? That's a very good question. Um, there is a little symbol, it's an H-O-N on the bottom of, your, um, of the screen that is a certification for a good website with reliable information. So you can have your patients look for the H-O-N. The other thing is, and I talked about this in my other presentation, which was on social media, um, the National Medical Library of NIH has a little video. If you Google um, qual health information quality, something like that, uh, internet, you'll find it. It's a, a short video that you can refer your patients to. You know, if, you, if a patient leaves your office with a list of things to do, they feel you're, like you're great and you did something. So if you give them and say, you know, go to this, I, I, I appreciate that you're on the web, Go to this um, video, watch this video, because this video tells you how to find things that are reliable, um, how to tell a good website from a bad website. The other thing I... Um, that URL is in my presentation from uh, Tuesday. So if you look at... Um, that was called Here, There, and Everywhere. So you have access to all of the, um, uh, the, the, what, the 
PowerPoints, it's on one of my slides. So you can find that there. And um, you know, I also tell people, and that, that, uh, that video does too, that if it's an EDU site, it, you can usually rely on it. Um, you know, it's sort of a list of the ones that are good. But the, the one way to tell that something is not good, for sure, is if, it, if the author, if it doesn't have an author on the page, or the author says admin or administrator. Because those websites are stolen websites. They're um, hackers that come in and steal stuff from other places. We don't know where it came from. Um, and they put it up somewhere. And it is not a reliable site. We don't know who the heck these people are. Any other questions? I just really want to stress that um, you know, when, when a patient tells their story, um, there's a lot to be learned from their story. And I think that it's worth listening um, because you know, I look at it this way. My providers are detectives, and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And that story um, can really make a difference between um, you know, your treatment, finding out clues as to what's really wrong with them, and when patients come in and get cut off, that automatically sets up flags to, I don't know if this provider's listening to me. So you can really let people think you're listening to them by saying, you know, I know you're very concerned about what's wrong with you and, and you know, learning more about your condition. And here are some websites that you can go to to find out more. Here's um, a, uh, you know, you can go to, to Facebook and you can look up our, our um, Support group is called Fibro and Pain. So if you go to the search box and you put in Fibro and Pain, you'll find a chronic pain support group that you can ask to join, and they'll you know admit you to the group. And then you can ask other people who have your condition questions, find out what they've done. So if someone's having difficulty doing something, they can go on and say, you know, what do you do for sleep? Uh, and they can talk amongst themselves. But you've given them that clue. It's a gift because you know again, when someone comes on at three o'clock in the morning in our um, support group and says, I can't sleep, is anybody up? And then people embrace them electronically and support them, which you don't want to be doing, having patients calling you at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs>